Welcome to the Wealthy Circle Podcast, where we take a deeper dive into this year's finalists and winners from our wealthmanagement.com industry awards. These interviews cover the challenges, innovations, and trends in the wealth management industry and the individuals working to help advisors better help their clients. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to this, the Wealthies Podcast. This is the podcast, as you know, where we speak with the people responsible for the initiatives recognized in our wealthmanagement.com industry awards. And today, I am thrilled to be speaking to Lon Dolber. Lon is the CEO of American Portfolios. Lon, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, thank you for inviting me. So this year, the judges, American Portfolios has been recognized for the past couple of years with our awards program. This year, recognized in for three categories, including CEO of the year. So congratulations for that. Thank you. Uh, you want to, before we dive into some of the other initiatives that uh, you were recognized for, maybe take a step back and for the part of the audience that is not familiar with American Portfolios. Uh, this is a company you founded, I think in 2000, 2001, uh, has grown to be 800 and some independent investment professionals, 400 offices across the country. Tell us a little bit about uh, American Portfolios. Give us the background, why you started it, what you hope to accomplish. Yeah, we our, our first day in business, which ended up not being our first day in business, was scheduled to be September 11, 2001. Hmm. Um, we were a group of advisors that were with Nathan Lewis Securities. And Jay Lewis, the founder, he knew that my goal was to inevitably uh, form my own broker-dealer and uh, build my own financial service company. And uh, I was with Nathan Lewis for five years. And in February of 2001, I uh, met with Jay and said, I believe I'm ready to do it. I uh, found a firm that I could acquire a small broker dealer. And uh, we set a date. And the date was September 10th to have us tatted, moved over, and we'd be ready for business on September 11, 2001. And of course, uh, as you know, that ended up not being our first day in business uh, because of what happened. So, um, you know, uh, some people say to me that my timing was horrible, but I think if it was a month later, some of the advisors might have said, well, maybe we should wait. Maybe we wouldn't even be talking today if that was the case. Hmm. It was already too late because we were, you know, all moved over on, on that Monday. You had all the agreements in place and everything was ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I often tell the story that, um, you know, I remember watching and thinking, I can't believe this is happening. And uh, to some extent, I was more concerned about, you know, myself and the business and what it would mean and not thinking about, you know, they thought maybe there could be 10, 20,000 people that were uh, killed in that disaster. And uh, but then I saw later on in the week, companies talking about how they were going to rebuild. And I thought, well, if they can do it, then, you know, I can do it. And I uh, never looked back, said, I'll just find a way to make it no matter what. That is the American way. Yeah, for sure. You are located uh, in New York State. Where are you based out of? We're uh, the middle of Long Island, Holbrook, New York, right by MacArthur Airport. Okay. Did you have any presence in the city 20 years ago? Uh, my branch was always in on Long Island. When I started in the retail business, uh, I used to work at 1250 Broadway, which was you know, in New York City when I was a retail professional working for another broker dealer. But as American Portfolios, uh, we have branches in New York City, but our home office has always been uh, out on Long Island. Sure. When you started 20 years ago, when you finally did get up and running, how big was the network at that point? We started with eight employees, 
85 advisors, about 400 million in assets, and 2,500 square feet of space. Today, we you know, have 40 billion in assets, close to 800 advisors, 400 branches, um, and about 50,000 square feet of space. So we've grown substantially in the 20 years uh, that we've been in business. So yeah, that's an, an amazing growth story. And I think that's one of the reasons the judges recognized you as a finalist for CEO of the year. What do you attribute it to? What, uh, what are you offering uh, your reps that... Uh, in the in the beginning, the you know if you think about it, I, I was a super OSJ with eight branches under me, mm-hmm. and I think the idea was we would have a shared ownership model, and that's basically what we talked about. If we were our own broker dealer, uh, we could have a shared ownership model, and th- that was really the main reason why we did it to have more independence uh, and be able to make some of our own decisions. Uh, but also have a shared ownership model. And to this day, we have that. I'm a firm believer in what I call stakeholder capitalism, which is uh, all the stakeholders should have a stake in the business, you know, employees, advisors, community, and shareholders. And I am the significant shareholder, but I believe the value of a business should be shared across all stakeholders, not just shareholders. And I think that was the basis of how I built the company. Uh, even back then, when I, they weren't using the word stakeholder capitalism, I think intuitively I, I built the firm around that that idea. And so, do each of your independent reps have uh, a equity in the? So we have um, a stock option plan for employees, mm-hmm. and we have a uh, what they call a phantom stock plan for the advisors. There's stock that's been allocated that I vote, and they're issued units every year based on business. And uh, that's the capital structure. But there is actual stock that is registered under the name of the plan. And the the idea is that should there be value, however that value is created, it'll be shared uh, between the employees and the advisors. And as far as the community, we do a lot of work in the community. So we're sharing value that way in in the social responsibility. Well, yeah, and we can talk about that too. Uh, you know, I understand that the judges recognized you for your uh, corporate social responsibility efforts with the AP for Life Creative Residency. Yep. You want to jump into that now? You want to tell us about that? Well, that's interesting. That story uh, was a couple of years back. I was online and I, I this fellow had posted a picture of his autistic son playing the piano as a little boy. And uh, it was amazing. And I reached out to him and I said, you know, um, I've been doing uh, an event up at the Center for Discovery with, you know, children that are physically and emotionally challenged, many with autism. And we started talking and um, I didn't realize, by the way, that this individual was an artist, a recording artist. And I happened to play in a Motown band. And when I found out he was, I said, by the way, I'm doing a show at the Patchogue Theater. Do you want to come and sing with us? And he said, I've been there many times, sure. And we became friendly and he told me about the work he was doing in Ferguson and I just got involved. I thought this would be a, a, a good way to get involved with an actionable work where we could actually make a difference, not just in words, but in action. And so we created this fellowship and it's made a difference because two individuals have already graduated and have gotten really good jobs. It's really ground level work when you create a fellowship to an individual that's in an area that they need the money, they need the support, and with it, it can change their lives. There, you touched on a couple of things there. I'd love to jump on A, you play in a Motown band? 
Yeah, I actually do. And uh, But let me just uh, go on the record and say, if I have to make my living as a musician, I'll probably kill myself. <laughs> I do it only for one reason, to make sure that my primary job running a financial service company is successful. <laughs> but I do. I do play in a, a Motown band as the bass player and a manager. And we've actually played in theaters. We've played on Broadway. Uh, we've, uh, we just played at the West Hampton Performing Arts. Uh, we have about seven theater shows coming up uh, this year which includes a Broadway show with uh, Sam Cooke's daughter, Carla Cooke, and Brian Owens, who's the uh, CEO of Life Arts. Wow. And what is the name of the band? Uh, that Motown band. That Motown band. Great. <laughs> Naturally. <laughs> so it was through that connection that you met with your partner here in the AP for Life Creative Residency. Is he based in Ferguson? When he agreed, when he said he would come and do the show with us, uh, I And I said, well, look, the, when you fly in, maybe after the show, we can drive up to the Center for Discovery and you can go see what the center looks like. What is the Center for Discovery? It's a, probably the most significant place for children that have physical and emotional challenges. And they live there. And the center is uh, right at the forefront of doing work with children that are on the spectrum. And uh, I've done a, a challenge, what we call an adventure challenge for 13 years, where over two days we kayak, we climb, we hike, uh, we orienteer. And I figure out how to do it with all the participants, some who are uh, not ambulatory, they're in wheelchairs, but we figure out how to do it. So I wanted Brian to go up there and see the place. And on the way up, we became friendly and he talked about the work he was doing in Ferguson. And, um, and I realized it'd be an opportunity for us to do something meaningful. And uh, so we jumped in and we committed a significant amount of capital for two years. And Brian will be coming back in October because we're doing that show on Broadway. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he, he looks like Marvin Gaye and sings like Marvin Gaye. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'll be talking about uh, continuing the program for another two years. That's great. And what it does is it supports the creative endeavors, training, development of young creatives uh, in Ferguson, Missouri. Yes, exactly. And, uh, and with the capital and with the support, they can pursue those uh, uh, you know, avenues and uh, where they might not be able to without that support. So, um, it, and it's worked uh, and it's important. And um, you know, so we're very happy to do it. Well, that's great. And the judges recognize that as well. The judges also recognized you, your firm, for the asset management division that you have, something called the Theme Catcher Portfolio under new product development. I know you, how long, nine points capital management, I think, is your asset management division? Has that been your asset management division from the very beginning? No, not from the very beginning. I mean, I must tell you, in the very beginning, I don't, we didn't have much of an RA understanding or presence, you know. Uh, that developed over time. If you go back 20 years, that was just starting. Uh, yeah. So uh, when you then talk about, uh, you know, nine points and theme catcher, uh, that came much, much later as we understood that space. I mean, the whole industry has been moving toward a fiduciary standard and uh, the advisory business. Um, I mean, in fact, in some countries, there's no more commission business. Yeah. Everything is based on a fiduciary standard. Uh, and that's how the business is moving. And But back 20 years ago, uh, certainly was not the case. Active managers, providing portfolios for your clients. Tell me about the theme catcher 
portfolio that you introduced in 2020? Well, I I, I think this the the idea primarily around building the uh, models, the portfolios, was that allows the advisors to use them versus them acting as portfolio managers themselves. You know, if I, look, we support that, and and that's really the bigger issue. We support the advisors if they want to act as portfolio manager, but on the other hand, if they want to maintain their work toward relationship management, they can use third-party managers. And so we developed these models so that you could use them and then uh, spend most of their time managing the relationship with the client. That was really the main purpose of it. Um, you know, and probably a lot of that comes from my mindset, which is always, you know, if you think about what is the, really the core thing that we do in the business is we manage the relationship with the client. But if you're going to be the portfolio manager as well, that's a challenge. And now we support that 100%. But uh, we've talked with many of our advisors about why not look at some of uh, using third-party managers and, you know, it gives you the time to spend with your clients on other things like financial planning and other avenues uh, to support the client. Yeah, definitely the direction the uh, industry is moving in. Um, yeah, I think so. And um, I, I think getting that segmentation too separate, you know, managing money is one thing. Yeah. Managing assets is one thing. But financial planning and doing some of the other work is very separate. And, and I really believe it should be looked at separately. It should even be, I believe, billed separately. So there's a distinct difference between this is what you get paid for managing money. This is what you get paid for these other services. And I think if you look at other places, that's where things are moving. Um, it should be that clear and that specific to the client. What are they paying for? What services are they getting specifically? Yeah, definitely. That's definitely the trend in the industry. Have you found your reps to be amenable to this idea of using outside models? I guess they're not outside models, they're your models. It's 50-50. You know, uh, many of the advisors, you know, they they want to manage because they feel that's the value that they bring to the table. And I guess I can understand that. Uh, What I say to them is, okay, if you're going to do that, then just consider doing it the way a portfolio manager would do it, which is you create models yourself and you assign accounts to the models. You know, what I find sometimes is advisors, they manage every single account separately. And that might be good for your top Tiffany clients, but who have two, three million with you. But how can you scale if, if you have 400 accounts and you're managing every single account separately? No portfolio manager could work that way. So we have tools that allow them to uh, build models and assign accounts to the models. And yes, for those accounts that are maybe very large and require uh, a different type of handling, they can manage it themselves. Here again, I only suggest, but we know that our, our role here is to support the financial practitioner in private practice. So we don't dictate, I suggest, and we have a discussion. And uh, sometimes I will convince that maybe it's a road to go down. But I would say this, if you're going to be a portfolio manager, then function like a portfolio manager. Yeah, right. And that doesn't always lend itself to also being a financial planner and yeah, of course. Person. I mean, it's all, they're, they're very distinctive, different things. And, uh, you know, you also, you know, need to have your investment policy statement. You should have your approach. It should be written out. It, it should be very clear what your style is when you're acting as a portfolio manager and you should use the tools that allow you to scale. I would also argue outside of the philosophy of this, can you really scale your practice 
managing every single account separately. I, I just don't think you can. I, I think you're, it's more prudent to use models and assign accounts to the models. And so I would argue that, and outside of that, if you're not going to manage the money, use the third-party managers. And uh, it's another way to scale your practice. There's also the argument that you can't scale your practice if you are managing every aspect of your business. So you <clears throat> take some of that off the plates of the advisors as well, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And um, there's no, no question about it. It's also less chance of making a mistake. Think about it. If you're managing 400 accounts, each one separately, you got more chance for making trade errors. It's just uh, it's just not a good way to scale. And um, and in many cases, I, I, my argument holds water with advisors and they, they look to make a change. And we do have the tools that allow them to manage money using models. And they can also use third-party managers. And we also have a, a UMA. So we give them a lot of the tools that they can use if they want to function that way. But still, some still decide they want to do every account separately. And that's the value they bring into the table. Sure. And there's also some uh, performance aspects here too, right? I mean, I understand that, you know, the theme catcher portfolio significantly outperformed the S&P in 2020. Yeah. Uh, I, I think, you know, you, you have that, but that won't always resonate with an advisor who feels that uh, they can outperform managing the, uh, themselves. What I would say is, okay, uh, show me the performance across the aggregate of all your accounts. You know, sometimes, you know, advisor will show you two or three accounts, but I'll turn around and say, no, no, that's, I want to see all 300 accounts, what the aggregate performance is. Well, to do that, you'd have to be GIPS compliant. And let me ask you, how many advisors that act as portfolio manager are compliant across the whole industry? I'm not talking about our company. I'm talking, if you took all the independent contractors act as portfolio managers, how many of them have certified performance calculation figures? You'd be, you'd be surprised that it's a very small group. Unfortunately, I don't think I would be surprised. Yeah. And, you know, when you think about it, like if you're going to be a portfolio manager, why wouldn't you want to have certified performance numbers? But to get that, you have to be kept certified. Why wouldn't you spend the money and go down that road? Just like any third party manager would do, because they want to be able to show a certified number. I think when I was mentioning the taking the, some of the business aspects off the plate of the advisor thinking beyond just portfolio management. I mean, last year, I, American Portfolios won our award for uh, the virtual virtual administrative services program. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's become a growing part of our business. And, um, you know, in fact, just the other day, another advisor signed up. It's, it's really worthwhile because it removes the advisor from, you know, payroll. It removes them from HR, removes them from all of that. Uh, and it's a centralized way for them to work. They can, they can have their office any place and they don't have to worry about the staffing. The staffing is centralized with us. We take care of all the HR issues. We take care of everything. And I would argue that I think from an efficiency point of view, because we're on top of training our employees, uh, they'll get a better result. They'll get more work done. So it's a fast growing. It's another vertical in our business, which is the virtual assistant program. Where do you see it going? I mean, what's, uh, what's on the future for American portfolios, more verticals like this do you plan on adding? And if so, what are you thinking about? Yeah, I think, I think it's important because, you know, one of the verticals, you know, that we had, which was, you know, the monetization of our cash balances, you know, in a low interest rate environment, you kind of lose that. Mm. You can't rely, you can't rely on one vertical in business. It's kind of what I tell the advisors too. You can't just rely on the management of money. 
you got to rely on a multiple verticals in a functionalized practice. Well, it's the same thing for us. So I look at the VAS as uh, uh, another vertical to add. Um, so, and it's growing, and I think it's going to be a big part. I, I'd like to see other verticals, like we can provide some practice management verticals. We could provide uh, some verticals even for outside RAAs, where we could even potentially give them a virtual CIO situation. So when you start thinking about providing services, there are many services we could provide, uh, but we started with the uh, VAS, the virtual assistant. Now, could we provide a marketing vertical? Now, now all the broker dealers, as you know, do some level of marketing and do help the, their brokers, their advisors. But I'm talking about uh, something a little bit different. If, if you're running a functionalized practice and you have an ongoing marketing approach, that takes a lot of staff and time. We could build a vertical around that where it helps them with, with, their, with everything they're doing out with their web, with their blogs. We have writers on staff. So uh, I see that as a vertical. I see marketing as a clear additional vertical that advisors should be willing to pay for. How about recruiting? Where are you looking for uh, new reps? Where are you finding them? I think for us, it's always been a good number of the advisors that are joining us are coming from consolidated groups. The business has seen a lot of consolidation. And I've met brokers that have made a change four times and they, and they never made the decision to make that change. Right. Because they were with a firm that was acquired, then it was acquired, then it was acquired. I've managed to keep the firm private for 20 years. And so advisors look at us as we're a significant private company in the space. How many are left? I mean, there are a couple that are much bigger than we are, like a Cambridge and a Commonwealth which are excellent firms, but how many others are there? We're, you know, we're approaching 300 million in top line revenue. How many firms approaching 300 million in top line revenue that are private, that are not owned by a consolidated group or a private equity firm? Right. Not too many. And needless to say, I mean, it, would it be in your plans to eventually sell the firm to? I, I've always said that I like being private I want my company to survive culturally the way I've built it. If there was a strategic reason, a really good reason to, to partner with somebody, I would consider it. I do take calls. You know, I, I, you know uh, my colleagues know that. As a CEO, it's my responsibility to do that. But I have not found a situation that I felt would be accretive to our business. I don't totally get consolidation for the sake of consolidation. I just... I've never gotten it. Yes, they, they argue it creates scale. But look, we're profitable. We're doing well. We're providing a service. How much scale do you have to have to be viable as a private company in, in America? You know, this whole argument about size only goes so far. Just, you know, we watch our expenses. We watch what we're building. We're careful. So you can still be smaller and do well. I would argue that the smallest broker dealer should be able to survive in this country. It shouldn't just be big that survives. Yeah, well, I think a lot of that, uh, tell me what you think about this, a lot of that push towards consolidation and scale is driven, I think, by the uh, stakeholders that are part of those organizations, namely private equity firms or insurance companies or whoever they might be, right? Or you might say shareholders. You yeah, know, right. I, is it really driven by community? Is it driven by advisors? Is it driven by employees? I don't think so. It certainly isn't driven by employees who end up getting let go in many cases. Mm -hmm. You know, and what does the community have to do with that? Mm 
And I might even argue, and what is the end customer? Let's talk about the end customer, the investing public. How does the consolidation help the investing public? That's what I'd like somebody to explain that to me. It's not about the the investing public. It's about consolidation for profit Mm -hmm. and for scale and for shareholder value. Well, how does that help community? How does it help employees? How does it help advisors? And how does it help the investing public? Somebody maybe could explain that to me at some point. But it doesn't sound like you are interested in getting involved in any of those situations anytime soon. Well, it's certain, like I, I, again, it, it would have to be something that was accretive to our business that would add real value, and it would have to be culturally uh, aligned with my stakeholder, you know, capitalism approach. And so that does eliminate quite a few possibilities. I, I would admit that, but you know, I still take calls and I still look. At, I mean, look. I have a good succession plan for myself. I'm 66 years old. I have a younger staff of employees here, uh, of executives. Uh, you know, I want to see the business continue. I have a lot of pride in what we've built, and I don't have to do anything. See, I often tell this story, but it's a great story. When I was 10 years old, 11 years old, I saw a movie called Citizen Kane. Are you familiar with that film? I remember one scene that had an impact. Uh, he's at his newspaper and he's being hassled by the trusts, the trustees of his trust. They're saying, you're losing money every single year. Every year you lose money. How can you keep doing this every single year? Now the guy loved running his newspaper and he turns to him and he goes, let me see now. At this rate, I could keep losing money for a hundred years and still run the paper. Now, I, I remember thinking about that. The effect it had on me as a kid was, if you do something you love that has meaningful value to you, as long as you can sustain as long as you can sustain, you can stay doing that thing. I like the business. I've always liked the business. We're not losing money, but we don't have to make X. We can, you know, we don't have to drive just for profit's sake. Uh, we want to be sustainable. Sustainability is the name of the game for me, you know, and that doesn't mean you have to have 20% every year. You could even have some years, maybe you lose a little bit, as long as you can keep the business going and sustain. Well, it's been 20 years on that you've been doing it. So uh, I'm sure there's another 20 years or at least to go. So uh, thank you. it's been fantastic talking to you. Lon Dolbert, the uh, finalist for CEO of the year for small broker dealers. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And this has been the Wealthies Podcast. I'm David Armstrong. Thanks for listening. This content has been made for information and educational purposes only. The views and opinions represent the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views and opinions of wealthmanagement.com.